Hey, thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace, it is our full conviction that as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and for correction and for reproof and for training in righteousness. We are committed to teaching the whole counsel of God that the people of God might be built up and that lost sinners might come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I, I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let us ask the Lord's help now as we look at his word together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who has spoken, that you have not remained silent, Lord. And we see even in creation, it was through your word that you brought all things into existence. And Lord, it is by your word that we have been born again, that we have been brought from the dominion of darkness into the dominion of light to see the glory of Christ. And it is by your word that we are sustained, that we are preserved until that great day when Christ returns and all things are glorified. And so we ask now, Lord, that is your word that would minister to our hearts. And Father, the things that I say would be in accordance with your scriptures. And Lord, if there are things that are not, that the people would be discerning and would, uh, Lord, come and, and talk about it. And Lord, that we would be testing all things uh, against your word. We thank you for your spirit who you have given to guide us into all truth. Father, I ask that our hearts would be submissive to his teaching this morning. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. So Philippians chapter 1. And you recall last week and the week before, we spent some time in the book of Acts looking at that amazing time when, when Paul the Apostle, along with Barnabas and then Silas, picking up Timothy at Lystra, makes his way into Macedonia for the first time that the Lord had essentially barred his way as he went to take the gospel to the other areas um, 
and, and it was through a, a dream that, that God tells Paul, come over to Macedonia, preach the gospel in this region that has not had the gospel preached. And so they make their way from, from Troas, likely there picking up Luke, as it would seem from Luke's record. He goes from uh, talking about they to talking about we and us and Luke and Timothy and Paul and Silas make their way over and they find this little group of women praying at a riverside. And there we saw in Acts 16 last week that God saves Lydia, that he opens her heart, we are told, to pay attention to the things said by Paul. And Lydia is born again, and she is baptized, and she shares the gospel with her household. And uh, after Paul then casting a demon out of a fortune teller who is making lots of money for her owners, Paul and Silas are dragged into the uh, what is supposed to be a court, but it is no court at all. It is just a mock trial where they are beaten and imprisoned. And then God miraculously uh, delivers them and saves a Philippian jailer uh, there who asks, What must I do to be saved? And Paul tells him to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And this man is born again. He is brought into Christ and his household also, we're told, is He shares the gospel with them and Paul and they're baptized and they are brought into the church and you have the beginnings of a church at Philippi. And so we come now to Paul's letter writing back to this group of people. Um, No doubt it has grown since then. A lot of things have happened. Um, Likely it is believed that Paul is writing this letter from prison in Rome probably around 60 AD. And so uh, we don't know exactly how much time has passed, but it could be, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. We're just not exactly sure from the time that Paul would have planted this church to the time when he wrote the letter, maybe even less than that. And so Paul is likely writing from prison, even as he makes reference to his imprisonment um, to the Philippians. We don't know exactly Uh, He references Timothy right off the start, Paul and Timothy. Um, And yet this is not Timothy helping write the letter because we know that all of the, uh, all of the, the, I guess it would be pronouns. Someone can correct me if my English is wrong. They're all singular. I thank God in all my prayers of you always in every um, prayer of mine. So Paul Paul is clearly stating that he is writing this letter. He is communicating this to the people at Philippi and makes reference of Timothy um, as one who was there when the church was planted maybe you recall Timothy came with Paul from Lystra to Philippi this would have been one of Timothy's first missionary uh, experiences as a, as a minister with Paul and Silas and he would have been there at the riverside when Lydia was saved and the gospel was preached to the Philippian jailer and gathering in Lydia's house likely Timothy remembers all of that very well and No doubt these people uh, think much of Timothy as well. Some believe Timothy may have even wrote this letter as Paul dictated it. Uh, Paul a lot of times would have someone write his letters for him. And and some believe maybe his eyesight was bad. Um, As a man who had been beaten and stoned and imprisoned and whipped as many times as Paul, I imagine even his hand motions were not great. Uh, You could just imagine the scarring that this man had in his body from the suffering that he had experienced. And so maybe Timothy is there with Paul writing this down as Paul dictates it. But um, either way, we know clearly it's Paul writing to the Philippians and that he writes uh, to encourage them in the faith, to rejoice in the progress of their faith, to remind them of walking in Christ's likeness 
And he also writes to thank them for a gift that was sent by way of Epaphroditus. We'll see him later in the letter. And Epaphroditus apparently grew very sick while he came to Paul and delivered this gift from the church at Philippi and almost died. And so Paul writes also to update the people on how Epaphroditus is doing and that he will be returning. And so this morning, I I just hope to look at some of the trademarks of the church at Philippi. What do we learn about this church, even in these opening verses of this letter written by Paul? And uh, there are three that I want us to look at this morning, three trademarks of the church at Philippi. And we see, first of all, that these people are people who are dearly loved and who are served by Paul and the other teachers and apostles. They are people who are dearly loved and served by Paul and the other missionaries and apostles. And you see right away, Paul, as he is writing this letter, it is unique in that we don't see him correcting problems or heresies. You know, it's not like the letter to the Corinthians who is writing with a very strong rebuke to stop sinning, stop endorsing sin, uh, and celebrating sin even, and correcting a lot of, of bad theology and a lot of bad um, orthopraxy as they're doing things that are not honoring to God. And Paul writes with a very stern hand. But to this church, he is very encouraged. It is a, there's a sense of joy as Paul is writing, a sense of thankfulness that he is just overflowing with love and gratitude for this church who has blessed him. So we see that Paul uh, cares greatly for them. And, and of course, as I mentioned, you could imagine why, as you recall the account of how this church was planted. You could imagine Paul coming in with the missionaries into this town and Lydia being saved and, and, and just the excitement and the joy. And we talked last week about how even uh, at the conversion of one sinner that the, the courts of heaven are celebrating, all the angels in heaven. And it just would have been such a wonderful time of newness and, uh, and, and growth, and then also a time of, of great suffering as Paul is beaten and Silas, and they're bleeding and bruised, and, and they are nursed back to health by the church. Uh, as Paul and Silas, we were told last week, come out, even the Philippian jailer and his family helped to nurse the wounds. Um, you could imagine being beaten with rods by a mob um, to the brink of, of, of death, probably broken ribs, broken bones, um, you know, bleeding and, and bruising. It would have been a horrendous experience. And the church would have rallied around Paul and Silas and, and loved them and served them and encouraged them and, and saw to it that they recovered. And it would have been a time of, of really being knit together um, in the ministry. And you get that sense uh, here. And I think as Christians, that's what we should also be experiencing. You, you know, we may not go through experiencing that kind of persecution, but nonetheless, we walk through difficult days together. We walk through struggles and trials and and disappointments and heartaches. And and as we share that with one another, as we pray with one another, as we minister to one another, our hearts are being knit together as a body. And that is exactly what should happen in the body of Christ. And so we need to be vulnerable with one another. We need to be willing to, to open ourselves up to our brothers and sisters yeah, in, in maybe our struggles and, and how we can pray for one another that our hearts might be knit together. And we see that Paul uses this word in, in uh, describing himself and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And uh, you might have a little 
Uh, I have a little one there, um, which you go down, you know, it has the, all the word just escaped me for what that is called, and they have a little tiny number beside it. Uh, footnote, I guess that's it. Footnote that goes down, it says, or slaves, um, and the, the Greek word is doulos, and I was bugging my wife that, you know, women who are into childbirth and such things, they're always talking about doulas and wanting a doula for this or that. And this is where the word comes from. It just means slave. It, it means someone who is at your bidding, someone who, who you basically own in that sense. It is much stronger than servant. And I think partly it is translated a little lighter than slave uh, because of the very negative connotations of slavery in our culture. Uh, slavery, you know, in the, in, in the later centuries was much different than in the first century. Uh, it wasn't always a bad thing in the first century. And many times it was a way of, of paying off debt that you couldn't otherwise pay. You just basically sell yourself to the, the one you're indebted to and you are their slave until the debt is paid off. Or maybe it's a, a lifetime slavery. But sometimes that was a good thing. If it was a good master who took care of you, who provided a, a meals and housing, provided work and responsibility... Uh, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing in this culture. But Paul uses this word of slave to describe his own relationship to not only the Philippian church, but to Christ. And it is something that a lot of the New Testament writers use. We, we often see it translated as servant. Sometimes the translation might go as far as bondservant. Whatever a bondservant is, I don't know. I wish they just translated as slave, even though there is that negative connotation. But it is this idea of being completely owned by someone. Paul is not looking to build up his own self-esteem, build his own ministry platform, you know, get a good, a good base to, to promote his latest book um, through these churches. Paul sees himself as a, a blood-bought slave of Jesus Christ, and he is literally pouring out his life for the sake of these Christians, many times being beaten right before their eyes, suffering for the sake of the gospel. And as people look at this man suffering, they are pointed even to Christ, Paul would say in Corinthians, that he is filling up what is lacking in regards to the sufferings of Christ. It's not that Christ's suffering was insufficient, but that there are people in the world who know nothing of Christ, know nothing of his suffering. And as his people suffer for the sake of the gospel, people are pointed to Christ through that. And so in many ways, Paul is a living uh, picture of the suffering Messiah to these people, to these churches. And he says, listen, I am not here as someone to lord my authority over you. I'm not here to, to gain at your expense as though I'm you know, lining my pockets through the, the offering plates or anything like that. Paul said, I am here as a servant, as a slave of Jesus Christ, one who was in bondage to sin, who was enslaved to the, the, ju the, the judicious system of law-keeping and pharisaical thinking, and Paul was enslaved to that. And we know uh, on the way to, uh, to Damascus, he was encountered by Christ, the risen Savior, and was delivered. He was bought. He was redeemed through the work of Christ. And this is one of the most common ways these authors describe themselves. Even Peter would use this kind of language. Men who would have all the grounds for boasting, having walked with Christ, 
having talked with Christ, having seen the miracles of Christ, and yet they are content to describe themselves as slaves. You know, Jesus says in John 8, 3, whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. And we know that all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We are all guilty. We are all born in this enslavement. And so it's not that Christ, that salvation only breaks the bonds of sin, which absolutely Christ does that at the cross. He, he atones for our sin. He delivers us from the wrath of God, having broken the, the curse by becoming a curse for us. But Christ does more than simply liberating us. We are actually purchased by him as his own special, unique possession. We also become slaves of Christ. We become owned by Christ. This is why Paul would say, listen, don't sin with your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own to live however you want, to do whatever you want, whenever you want. You are a a blood-bought slave of Jesus Christ. And this is not something that we should resent. It is not something that is burdensome. Jesus would say in Matthew 11, 29, Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is not a malicious master. He is a gracious master. He is a master who delights to provide for us, to watch over us, to protect us, even as we We're reminded in Psalm 23 that his rod and his staff, they they comfort us. The shepherd's rod is, is not a fearful thing to the sheep, for they know that it's by his rod that they are disciplined. They are kept from danger, that the wolves and and the, the wild boars are driven out of the flock. And so we rejoice in this identity as slaves of Christ. And and it also is very helpful as we think about our life. We think about our jobs, we think about our spouse, our home, our car, our children. <clears throat> we think about our possessions, our, our skills, all that we have, all that we are, ultimately belongs to Christ. And so we don't have to feel like um, we are on our own when it comes to getting through our, another day at work or, or managing these children or or that we're, that we're somehow going to have to bear the weight of, of figuring out how all the pieces are going to come together and you know, paying the bills or, or disciplining children. We, we come to the Word of God humbly and we say, Lord, all of this is yours. You must empower me. By your Spirit, you must enable me. You, you, must, you must give me wisdom, as James says, and help me to walk in obedience, to be a good steward of all that is yours. And it is very liberating in that sense um, that we are not the ones who are finally and ultimately responsible for all of our children's salvation, for how our spouse is walking with the Lord and, and these sorts of things. We can cast these upon the Lord. As a child does not worry about where I'm going to get breakfast tomorrow morning, they don't really worry about if their clothes are going to be clean or if their clothes are clean. In our case, they're just as happy to put on dirty clothes. These, these sorts of things don't usually enter into a child's mind because they enjoy the protection of mom and dad, the provision of mom and dad. And so it should be for the Christian who understands 
They are not their own. They have been bought by Christ. They belong to Christ. A lot of people are wondering, what am I supposed to do with my life? What's God's will for my life? As though we're supposed to have this roadmap that maps out the next 50 years of our life and every decision that we will make and, and every investment, every, every word that is spoken, God is going to somehow reveal to us. No, we, we trust that we belong to Christ and we walk by faith day at a time and we trust the Lord will give us guidance as we need it, even with Paul. Setting out on that missionary journey. He didn't know he would end up in Philippi. He's just trying to be obedient. He's trying to share the gospel with with anyone he can. And and God leads him step by step as he needs that instruction. Because he belongs to Christ. And Paul sees himself as a servant not only of Christ. But of the churches. Specifically this church at Philippi. Secondly, in regards to this church. We see not only that they are loved and served by Paul and the other teachers and apostles, but we see that they are saints in Christ Jesus. Now this word saints um, simply means holy ones or those who are set apart. It is a a word that was even used at times in the Old Testament in regards to the temple The holy place, the place that has been set apart for God. This goes far beyond just being good people or people who are trying to please God. This is an attribute of God himself, holiness, that these people are are saints. They are holy ones. They are people who are set apart. When you think about it, it, it really seems wrong that Paul would call these believers saints. I mean, as wonderful as... As they might have been, you know, Lydia with her hospitality, basically telling the the missionaries, you are going to stay at my house whether you like it or not, and you're going to eat my food whether you like it or not. And so sure enough, no doubt, they they go there and likely Lydia continued to host this church for a good time. Um, But even still, we know that Lydia herself would have been guilty of, of sin. She was not holy in this sense. Why is Paul talking about her as as a saint or the Philippian jailer who was basically a slave of Rome who would have probably been taking bribes at times and, and uh, you know, abusing his position of authority as a jailer. And, and we know that this man would have sinned against God. Why is he referred to as a saint? How is it that Paul can talk like this? These are attributes of God, holiness. We find in 1 Timothy 6.16, describing God that says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. He is the Holy One. He is the one who is set apart from all else. How is it that Paul uses such a word to, des- to describe this church at Philippi? We know that this applies to God. 1 John 1.5 God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. And, and even when John the Apostle sees the vision of the new city, he describes it in Revelation 21 as the city that has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day. But then he says, and there will be no night there. They will bring it into the glory and the honor of the nations. Verse 27, 
but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Even the place where God dwells cannot tolerate uncleanliness, unholiness. And if we are honest, if we examine ourselves, we know that often we are guilty of things that are detestable to God. We are guilty of things that are false. We, we neglect to do the things, as, as Dave said, that, that we should do. So how is it that Paul describes these ones as holy? And there is only one answer, which I know many of you know well, but let us remind ourselves. As Paul says, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel. That is the only reason that this church, that these people can be described as saints, is if they have a righteousness that is not their own. An alien righteousness. A righteousness that has been imputed to them from a righteous one. And that is Christ. That as Jesus comes, he comes born of God, perfectly walking in obedience to God, fulfilling the law of righteousness. And then Christ on the cross, taking our shame, taking our filth, taking the curse of the law upon himself by becoming a curse, we're told in Galatians. And there Christ bears the wrath of God, our shame upon his shoulders. And we are imputed to the righteousness of Christ We are clothed in His garments by faith. This is the only answer to the question, how can Paul call these Christians saints in Christ Jesus? And you see, he says it's in Christ Jesus. This is the only way we can be described as holy ones. But even as we sang, we have to get that right. We have to learn to stand there. When the enemy of our souls comes against you and, and reminds you of your guilt and, and tells you that you will never measure up, you'll never be good enough for this God, you, you will certainly be condemned on judgment day, that you are unclean and unworthy of this God. And the enemy of your souls will, will throw those fiery darts at you. You must not try to defend yourself, but simply throw yourself upon Christ. That you are absolutely right, Satan. I am guilty. I am sinful. But Christ has taken my sin upon himself. Christ has borne the wrath of God on my behalf. And I am in him. I am hidden in Christ. And God sees not my filth, but the righteousness of Christ that I have been clothed in by grace, working through faith. And so we rejoice And we marvel that Paul can call these people saints in Christ Jesus. And so it is for all who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are saints. You are justified. You are holy ones set apart. And so we don't live out our Christian life to somehow um, pay back that righteousness. But we live out our Christian life that it might be displayed. That we are holy ones. We are living out the reality of what Christ has done for us. If you ask the average Christian today, what is the gospel? You might hear something like, well, 
The gospel is that we love God and we love people. That is the summary of the gospel. But do you realize that that is the summary of the law? As our friends at the White Horse Inn often remind us, if you listen to that podcast, that that's the summary of the law. If you think the good news is to love God and love people, then you are someone walking by works. You are trusting in what you can do to justify yourself before God. The summary of the law is love God and love people. The same law that condemns us, that we fall short of, that we, that we are cursed by if we fail at even one point. No, the gospel is that Christ has fulfilled the law and will impute to those who believe upon him his own righteousness, that he has died to take away our shame and he has risen to display the victory of his atonement, the pleasing uh, grace of his Father upon him, that he is pleased with his sacrifice and ready to forgive all who will call upon him. That is the gospel. And then, because of that, we love God and love others. We begin walking in obedience to the law. Christ is the only one who has ever loved God and loved neighbor perfectly every day of his life. And so we need his righteousness if we are to be called holy ones, saints, those who are set apart. This is really the the great heresy of the Catholic Church to elevate some as saints because of what they have done, thinking that they somehow have obtained this this merit before God because of their own works. And even in heaven now, there is this treasury of of merit that the saints have have done so much good works that they've actually got a store of of grace that you can can draw from through penance and and through various uh, ceremonies and and confession that you can somehow get a hold of that grace that the saints... No, 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 no. That is totally misunderstanding the gospel. That is no gospel at all. That is bondage. We are saints in Christ alone. And that is the only way anyone can rise to the status of sainthood is by placing their faith in Christ. And there is no sinner too vile to be exempt from this gift because Christ has paid it all once for all. So we see that these Christians at Philippi are loved by Paul and Timothy and the other Ministers of the gospel served by them. We see that they are saints in Christ Jesus. And then thirdly, we see that this church is led and served by qualified deacons and overseers or elders. Or some translations might even translate it as bishops and deacons. They are governed by qualified elders and deacons. Now, this is also very important and interesting that Paul would, would, would make mention of it here in describing this church. So, no doubt by this time, the church at Philippi had, had reached a certain level of maturity. They have now leaders in place. There is a structure happening, and there are deacons there, and there are elders or overseers leading and serving the church. Now, These are the two offices that the scriptures give us in regards to structuring the household of God. 
elders and deacons. And so I want to say a few words about this as we consider uh, this describing this church at Philippi. Um, this particular word that Paul uses that's translated as overseers is episkopos, which you probably have heard of episcopalians. And was what is episcopalian? You know, it sounds like a, a reptile or something, you know. But you hear of this group of people, and it's coming from this word, episkopos, which is in reference to an office in the church, an overseer, someone who is giving oversight to the congregation, who is leading and guiding, specifically in teaching and in prayer, as we see the apostles themselves giving them to that work early on in the book of Acts. And there are some other words that are used to describe this office in the New Testament. And it's often you'll see it translated differently, which I think is partly why there is a lot of confusion about this role, this office in the church. What is it? How do we structure it? Um, the other word is presbyteros, which, um, you know, you think of the Presbyterian uh, denomination. They, they take that Greek word and, and they kind of use it to help formulate their leadership structure and just describing their own denomination, the Presbyterian, the Presbyteros. It is describing this elder, this, this one who is older, who is mature, a, a mature Christian in Christ. And then the third word is poimen, uh, which is often translated as pastor or shepherd. And we see that at times as well, like in uh, 1 Peter 5, the shepherd's Peter would describe those who are giving this oversight and leadership to the church. So it helps a lot if you just understand that this is not five or six different offices in the life of the church, as I understand it. It's not that you have you know, some bishops and then some, some presbytery and then you have a few shepherds and pastors and then a few elders over there. No, this is actually, these are different words describing the same office. They are describing one role of spiritual oversight in the life of the church. And this is how God has given us uh, to structure his household of faith, to have qualified pastor, elder, shepherds. Um, some churches say pastor, elder, or, or shepherd, pastor. You know, they try to include words to kind of get the, the, the general um, overview of, of what Paul is after here. And... Yet there are these two roles of elder, pastor, um, bishop, whatever you want to call it, and then deacon. And we see a few lists in the New Testament that Paul would unpack this for us. And uh, we'll flip there for a few moments uh, together in just a minute. And, and I think the temptation is we consider even for us, you know, we're a young church. We're just starting out. We're trying to, to uh, you know, kind of navigate our way through this church planting. And, and I know I was actually, you know, one of the first times in my life, um, probably even the first one we had, but we had the call a family meeting, business meeting on Tuesday night, just trying to talk about some, some church-related issues. And it was encouraging. Like, I left feeling built up in the faith. I left feeling excited about what God is doing and and even the comment was made that we should do this more often, which has to be one of the strangest after comments of a business meeting I've ever heard. But wonderful, right? That, that as we are structuring the church, there should be a sense of anticipation, of excitement, of joy. And that this is God's work. This is, this is Christ's body. This is the testimony of the gospel in part in Fairview, among other ch- churches that uh, are proclaiming the message of the gospel. 
So we must ask ourselves, first and foremost, what does God say about structuring the church? How has God given us uh, blueprints to, to structure the leadership and the roles and the way that we do this? We need to ask that question. We must battle against the temptation to structure the church after the corporate world. You know, that we have this idea of kind of CEOs or some kind of professionals that are, that are running the show and, and uh, that everything kind of just, just revolves around them. No, no, that is not the picture. That is not the, the household of God. That is not the, the kingdom of God. Jesus would actually rebuke his own disciples in Matthew 20, verse 25. You might want to flip there for just a moment. Matthew 20 and Oftentimes, the disciples would get into these debates about who was the greatest and who was going to sit at the right hand and the left hand, and they'd get their mothers involved. And you know, it gets really nasty when you get moms involved in the discussion. But no, my son's going to be the greatest. And Jesus, you tell them that my son. And, and it just gets out of hand. And Jesus rebukes them, and he tells them in Matthew 20 25 um, how it should be among, among his people. He says, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And there they, you get that word, doulos, right? In this one they translate as slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so leadership in in the church is not about power. It's not about influence or prestige or any of those things. It is about those that God has has raised up and, and gifted the necessary gifts to teach and to pray, to lead in those things. But it is ultimately a place to die. It is ultimately a place to serve, to give, to, to spend yourself for the sake of the body. And this is what I must battle. We must all battle. As we come together and even eat a meal together, it's not about outdoing your neighbor in, in, in you know, what they brought or whatever. It's about serving. How can I bless them? And uh, how, can I, how can I contribute and build up this body? And as we continue to, to desire that, then we begin to model ourselves after what God has instructed. The other thing we notice about this is it's plural. Deacons and overseers among uh, at least you know churches I grew up in it was kind of structured in the pastor and then deacons and it was kind of this one man show in regards to that spiritual oversight and teaching and uh, partly maybe due to the fact that you know in, in Canada a lot of churches are smaller and so they they would like to have someone on staff and generally couldn't afford to have multiple pastors like maybe some of the bigger churches. And, and so because someone's getting paid, it kind of is this idea that, oh, they must be a few tiers above the other leaders or there must be something, you know, extra special. Um, and, and maybe it's just setting aside one to do the bulk of the teaching or something of that nature. But we must see the plurality here. Elders, deacons, this is not to be just one person, and, and this is something we talked about in our meeting on Tuesday, and um, talking about having Dave 
begin an eldership training process with the help of Pastor Ben at Cormdale. And, uh, and just so grateful that God um, is already raising up leaders among us. And that's something we must move towards, is a plurality of leaders. Is, is, a, is a group of qualified men who will give oversight. Because I know that I personally am weak in some areas. Um, maybe it's dealing with conflict. And, 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 and I have to really pray a lot for courage to, to deal with conflict. And maybe another elder would be very strong in that. But they might tend to steamroll people. And need help maybe being a little more gracious and, and tender with situations. And, and as, a, as a body of elders is brought together, you have this fuller, um, more healthy structure uh, in, in regards to the leadership of the church. And I know we don't have time to go into an extensive study right now. But you could jot a few places down. Um, where we see some of the, the passages where Paul describes this. First um, Timothy 3, we have Paul uh, giving us description not only of the deacons, but of the uh, elders. Getting myself, I'll turn around. First Timothy 3, and just let our eyes... Look upon it for a moment, First Timothy. I find it helpful in the New Testament, all the T's are together. So you have your, your Thessalonians and your Timothy and your Titus. So if you're looking for one of those with the T, just look for you know, a group of T's and you usually come close. Um, so First Timothy 3, we see Paul. And then here's where he really spells out writing to Timothy, likely at Ephesus, and helping him understand how do we structure this who do we look for to fill these roles of elders and deacons? And Paul describes the elder, first of all, if he says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and there you see that same, probably the same word that is used in, in Philippians um, of the episkopos, because it's translated as overseer, typically is how that goes. But he says, they desire a noble task, but they must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. They must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And we see this really kind of summary of, of that first description Paul uses, above reproach, kind of captures the essence of this individual. They are to be above reproach, both within the church and without the church. And, and these character qualifications, you can see, are so different than the corporate role. Could you imagine going to apply for a job and the first question they ask is, so, so are you a person that is above reproach? I mean, are, are, are you a lover of money? How much do you drink? Do you drink? Have you been drunk? How about self-control? And, and are, are you able to, to teach? Can you give instruction? And 
What about your wife? Tell me about your family. Do your kids respect you? Do, you know, could you imagine going to a job and having that kind of interview? No, they, it's often not even brought into the equation. It's just all about how good are you at your job. I don't really care about you know, which, which wife you're on or, or how many kids you've had that, that have just went off the deep end and, and have not been seen since. You know, it, it, those types of questions in the corporate world don't even surface. And yet for Paul, these are all at the forefront for those who are to be qualified to lead. And, and in many ways, this list is not just for leaders. This is to be the Christian's pursuit. This is for all of us, that as we try to honor Christ, we should be moving into greater and greater degrees of these attributes as followers of Jesus Christ. And so it's not that even the, the leaders are set aside in that, that this is something we all pursue. Really, the distinguishing characteristic between the deacon and the elder is there just kind of snuck in in verse 2, able to teach. And Paul expounds on that a bit more in Titus 1, that they are to be able to not only teach sound doctrine, but refute those who contradict. And that is really the, the decisive difference between the elder and the deacon. Um, those character qualifications carry right through, but the elders, these overseers, these pastor shepherds, are to display gifts of teaching and of correcting false doctrine. And so the deacon, we find further down in 1 Timothy 3, Paul goes on, deacons likewise, and this word means literally table waiters. We find it coming from Acts 6 when there was a need in the church for some of the widows to be cared for and the, the apostles were saying, listen, I don't have time to do this. I have to commit myself to the preaching and the studying of God's word and to praying for this congregation. I don't have the time to give to these needs. And so they raise up the deacons in the midst, those to wait on the tables. But we see even these deacons are men filled with the Spirit. Stephen, the first man to be martyred, was martyred because of his preaching. He was proclaiming the good news. And so these men are also to be filled with the Spirit of God, and yet there is not this requirement that they be teachers in that sense. So elders and deacons, um, overseers, and I thought of the examples. We think about structuring a church, and even as Paul describes this seemingly very healthy church at Philippi, that they have these structures in place um, you could imagine a contractor that agreed to build a house and say the homeowner, after doing all the work of getting the blueprint together and figuring out where the bathroom should go and do we do a sink in the island or not and do we want vaulted ceiling, not vaulted ceiling, all of these questions that, that uh, contractors must get answered and uh, blueprints must show. And, and so the homeowner gets all of these questions answered, everything's in order, and they find a contractor and they hand them the blueprint and they say, listen, I'm going to be gone for a while. Here's the blueprint. This is exactly how I want the house built. I'll come back in a few months and check on progress. And, and the contractor says, great, I'll get started right away. And then after working for a few months, the homeowner comes back. And the homeowner is shocked. He finds that the, the kitchen has been put in the basement and that there's only one bathroom on the top floor of the house and the, the garage is only big enough to fit a smart car. And, and he's appalled. And he's saying, what is going on? And the contractor says, well, I was thinking about it. You know, I have a lot of experience in this trade. I've been doing it a long time. And so I just made some adjustments for you. Things I think you would maybe enjoy after you gave it a try. 
Well, that homeowner would go and get a wrecking ball the next day and bring it in and smash the house down and make the contractor start over. I gave you a blueprint. You were to follow the blueprint. What have you done? You've made a mess of this. And yet how many churches are trying to reinvent the wheel, trying to to figure out a better way to do church than what God has said? No, that is not the case. Let us not try to figure out a better way to do church. Let us submit ourselves to the Word of God and try to build according to His blueprint, according to His instruction. And it is the church that seeks to walk in obedience to His Word, to structure themselves according to God's own guidelines that God will bless, that God will use, that God will be glorified in. And so let that be our prayer. And as we close, I just pray that um, we rejoice in these descriptions that are not only true of the church at Philippi, but even for us today. We are blessed by the work of the apostles and served by them through their writings and testimony. And we too are being called saints in Christ Jesus. If you have placed your faith in Christ, you are a saint in Him. And if not, I plead with you to to confess your sin, to turn away from your own law-keeping, and to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, even as the Philippian jailer. And let us continually study the Scriptures, and let us pray for one another, and even as we as a church try to begin structuring ourselves according to God's design, let us pray for, for Dave, and pray for myself, I request, and for Pastor Ben, and the leaders at Cormdale, that we would walk in obedience to God's blueprint, that He would be glorified. Let us go to the Lord in prayer, and we will close. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we know that we are very fickle. Lord, that we do often try to figure out a better way to present the gospel, to live out our lives, to raise our children, to do marriage, to um, structure churches. And Lord, all of these things, we just confess that we need you. We, We need your spirit to give us understanding, to bring conviction into our hearts of areas that we Um, Lord, are are going in the wrong direction, that you would steer us back and bring us again to Christ and to the joy of his fellowship. I pray for this dear congregation. I thank you, Lord, that you have brought us together and continue to add. and, And Lord, that we would be humble before you and Lord, gracious to the other congregations in Fairview and the other believers, Lord. But at the same time, we would be unashamed of being a people who walk in obedience to your word, and you would help us in that. We pray you bless our time of fellowship after, and keep the children safe, and Lord, we just thank you for food to eat as well. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. And by faith we'll walk as you walk with us. Speak, Thanks for listening to this sermon. We pray that you are built up and encouraged in your faith and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you'd like to know more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church, you can find us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca or you could write to us at redeeminggracebiblechurch at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you to answer any questions that you might have. God bless you.